What a great image in that last song. All, all the earth is going to shout your praise, God, and sing together, great are you, Lord, uh, and that we get to do that even as we gather together every Sunday morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning there as we continue our series on Ephesians. And if you're kind of tracking along with the series, you, you might have noticed when we just skipped over verses 15 through 23 in chapter 1, you might think, well, why is that? Uh, and, and when we get to chapter 3 as well, we're going to skip over verses 14 through 21. And again, you might think, well, well why, why is that? Why, why are we just skipping over passages? Uh, I, d- I decided to do that in this series because we already hit on those passages early this year when we were doing a series on prayer and looking at some of Paul's prayers. Uh, we, we preached on both those passages. So if you, you want to hear a message on those two sections of Ephesians, you can go back online to our sermons, and I think it's in February, uh, and find those. But we're going to skip over those as we go through Ephesians this time. I, I want you to just imagine with me for a moment uh, that you wake up on a boat in the middle of the ocean, and you have no idea where you are, how you got there, or who you are. This is a a plot from a a famous movie that came out in 2002 uh, based on a book called The Born Identity that that maybe many of you have seen, and it spawned several sequels as well. The the movie opens with with Jason Bourne in this very situation, uh, waking up on a boat. He's got a bullet hole in his back, and, and he has no idea who he is or how he got there. And then the plot of the movie is kind of him trying to figure out, well, who am I and what is my past? What's happened to my past? Because I can't remember any of it. As people are trying to track him down and kill him. And spoiler alert, uh, he's Jason Bourne. Uh, He's a agent for a top kind of CIA black ops group. Uh, You had 21 years to watch the movie, so if you haven't seen it already, uh, sorry, you're out of luck. But, But what's interesting is that Jason Bourne in this movie ultimately needs other people to tell him who he is and the story of his past. And and, and that he's trying desperately to figure this out so that he knows how to live presently. All of us need to know both who we are and, and the story of our past so that we know how to live in the present. We, we already kind of touched on this just briefly in our introduction to the series on Ephesians, but we're going to jump into it more this morning as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, because here God is telling us who we are. Or, or maybe more specifically, he's telling us the story of who we were, what he has done for us, and who we are now as a result. If you are a Christian this morning, what we read in verses 1 through 10 in Ephesians chapter 2 is your biography. This is who you are as a result of Christ. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, this is telling you who you are now apart from Christ so that you might look to Christ, trust in him, and become all that God wants for you to be in Christ. The, the way we put this, and I think we already put this in one of our points in an earlier sermon, is we need God to tell us who we are so we can live like that's true. We tend to underestimate who we really are. We, we tend to underestimate who we were or who we are apart from Jesus. Because what I find, and maybe you'll find this too, is that when we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and are prone to say, 
I wasn't that bad, was I? Or that, that's not me now, is it really? If we're not a follow, follower of Christ. Or, or we, we tend to underestimate who we are now in Christ, who we are united to him by faith, because we might read verses 5 through 7 or 8 through 10 and say, but that, that can't possibly be true of little old me. But when it comes to really knowing both who we were and who we are, we ultimately need God to reveal it to us and tell us the truth. And so that's what we want to do this morning as we read this spiritual biography, to to let God tell us who we were apart from Christ, what he's done for us, and who we are now as a result. Uh, And that's kind of how we're going to take the passage as well. We're just going to read it in chunks this morning, starting with just verses 1 through 3. But let me pray for us before we do. Father, when we come to your word, we believe that this falls on deaf ears and dull hearts unless your spirit enables us to hear and believe and listen and obey. And so we pray that as we read these words and think about them and meditate on them and hopefully worship you this morning, that your spirit might open our ears to hear and our hearts to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 2, uh, just 1 through 3 to start out. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verses 1 through 3 tell us who we were or who we are now apart from Jesus. So for the follower of Christ, this is who you were, or if you say, I'm not a Christian, this is who we are apart from Christ and God's grace. And again, I think it's important to recognize we may have not felt like this is who we are, But as always, when we come to God's word, if we're going to listen to it and believe it and obey it, we accept his word as true, even when it may grind against what we felt to be true in our lives. And and Paul says who who we were, we were dead, enslaved, and doomed. We were dead, enslaved, and doomed. First of all, we were dead to God. Paul starts off by saying you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once Walked. It's this picture of someone who's dead even while they're living be- because they're still walking in some way. And so we, we might ask, well, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be dead even while we are living and walking? It, it means that we were dead to God. I think a better way to comprehend that is that we had no real desire for God. We, we had no real taste for God, no real love for God, no real delight in God. Now, now, we should clarify, though, and recognize that doesn't mean we didn't know about God. That doesn't mean we didn't claim to believe in God, and that doesn't mean that we weren't religious in any way at all. Dead people can be very religious and say they believe in God. And yet dead people ultimately see God as a means to an end. There's no desire for God himself. There's just a desire for what might God give to me, both now and in the future, that I can get through him. As a child, I remember at one point, I don't know how old I was, how long this lasted, 
uh, but I had no real desire or taste for bacon. I think, man, what was wrong with you, Kyle? I, I don't know. But, but, but I would even, I would smell bacon and I would just respond and think, ew, I don't want that. Now, I believe bacon was real. I could tell you a lot about bacon and I might eat it if I really had to, but I had no real taste or desire or love for bacon in any way. You, you might say, Kyle was dead to bacon at that point in his life. You might think, man, how, how sad to miss out on the joys of bacon in your life. You'd be right. Paul's saying, we are born dead in sin. That we look at God and have no love for the one who is infinitely lovely and good. That we have no desire for the one who we were made for and who can satisfy us. And that we have no longing to worship the one who is infinitely glorious. That we look at God in some way and say, ew, I don't want him. How much more sad is that? See, we, we so often, I think, conceive of being a sinner as just the actions and behaviors we did or do, when really there is a far more sinister root that lies behind all of our actions and behaviors, that behind all of them was a dead, cold heart that did not care for God in the least. And dead people have no hope of making themselves come alive. Paul, Paul continues on to point out that our lives were being lived in bondage. In verses two through three, Paul describes this kind of bondage we were under to this kind of triple group of tyrants. One outside of us, one spiritual, and one within us. The, the world, the devil, and our own flesh. First he says, we, we followed the course of this world living, thinking, acting in accordance with its values and priorities. That, that the world would tell us that life and happiness is found in anything and everything except for God. And we gladly believed and followed right along with that. And then he says, we, we followed Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Maybe that's one of the most shocking descriptions in here that Satan reinforced and encouraged our desires for anything and everything except for God, and meanwhile whispered lies into our ear that would keep us from desiring God, saying he's not good. You can't trust him. He just wants to make your life miserable. And, and then ultimately, Paul says, we lived according to our own passions and sinful desires, that whatever desires we had for what we thought might make us happy, we went after we chased after full speed. If we thought people's praise would make us happy, we went after it at all costs. If we thought success would make us happy, we went after it at all costs. If we thought sex would make us happy, we went after it at all costs or whatever else, anything but God, we chased after. Now, now stop and just notice for a moment, especially how these three areas kind of reinforce each other. We, we live in our own cultural moment where in many ways we are told we should live according to our own inward passions and desires, as, as long as they don't harm someone else, whatever we might mean by that. That, that we're, we're told, the world around us says, life is found in following your own inward passions and desires. Don't, don't suppress them, live them out. 
and you'll be happy. And of course, because of our desires, we gladly latch onto that and say, well, this is, this is who I am. This is who I am. I look inward, I see this is who I am. No one else should keep me from living this out. No one else should tell me what I should do because if they are, they're suppressing my life and my happiness. Notice what, what our world says is life. God says that's death. What our world says, this is freedom. God says that, that's living in bondage. Maybe we can capture even what Paul, Paul's saying here with a picture of kind of these triple tyrants we live under. That, that maybe we could picture ourselves in a canoe headed down a river. And, and maybe think of the, the ways of this world as the current of the river taking you away from God. And, and maybe you want to picture Satan as the one who's in the canoe right next to you saying, isn't this great? Let's keep going. You don't want to go back upstream. It's really bad up there. And meanwhile, our own desires are causing us to paddle as fast as we can. Never once stopping to ask, why are we in this river? What are we doing here? And where are we even headed as we paddle away? And, and Paul tells us where we were headed. We were destined for destruction, he says. That as sinners, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That the river that we were so happily paddling away in was headed towards the massive waterfall of God's good and right anger against sin and evil in the world. That, this passage says that, that's the direction we're born headed in, and we gladly confirm it as we continue down that road. Apart from Christ, that is our future. Richard Cookin says God's punishment is our deserved inheritance. Do, do you see how hopeless and helpless we are apart from Christ? God would tell us. Now we might stop and ask though, why should we know that? Why is it important for us to have an accurate picture of who we were apart from Christ? And it's so bad. Why should we know it? And I want to give it just two answers to that question. There's probably more, but, but here's the first one. Because when we see what our life was and who we were apart from Christ, it can keep us from the foolishness of now turning away from Christ and trying to go back to that life. This passage is, I think, in some ways meant to be both a warning to the non-believer and the believer in Christ. To the non-believer, it says, this is who you are. You, you might deny it. You might hate it. You might try to justify it. But this is who you are. Turn to Christ in faith and find him saving you and giving you life. And, and to the believer, it says, this is who you were apart from Christ. Dead, enslaved, and doomed. Why would we ever want to go back to that life. But, but then uh, another reason, a second reason I think why we need to see this picture is because when we see how bad our life is apart from Jesus or how bad it was apart from Jesus, we truly appreciate God's grace to us. If we understand, or if we don't understand or don't appreciate God's grace to us, it's in many ways, I think, because we fail to understand or appreciate who we were, really were apart from Jesus. W within the church, I think there's this tendency 
maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's this tendency for us to elevate the testimonies of people who were really bad sinners as evidence of God's grace. Right? And so we, we look at someone and say, well, they did drugs, they had sex before they got married, they got in all sorts of trouble, I even heard they might have stabbed someone. And man, praise God for his grace to all sorts of different sinners, if that is your story. But if your story is more PG-rated, you just grew up in the church all along, you might think, well, I don't have a great testimony of God's grace. And you're wrong because of this passage and what the Bible says. Because you and I were dead, doomed, and enslaved. And what, what is being a heroin addict compared to being dead, enslaved, and doomed? That's who we were. Whether God saved you when you were doing a life sentence or he saved you when you were five years old at your church's VBS, this is who we are apart from Christ. Praise God for his grace in saving dead, enslaved, and doomed people like us. Because this is exactly what Paul is setting us up for in this passage. He's putting up the blackness of who we are so that it might contrast with the light of God's grace and what he's done for us in Christ. Because right after verse 3, we get to these incredible, life-changing words. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Thank goodness for the words, but God, because our life, our future, our hope, everything good for us hangs on those two words. And what we find in these words in this paragraph is what God has done for us in Christ, that God has changed everything about us. I want us to look especially how the descriptions of what God has done for us in Christ in verses four through seven directly flip on their head who we were as sinners apart from God's grace. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were enslaved, but God has seated us with Christ. We were destined for wrath, but God has now destined us for the immeasurable riches of his grace. Let's just stop and and think about each of those and maybe a little bit of what they mean. First of all, that we were given new life, or God has given us new life. We're told in verse 5 that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Maybe you hear an echo there in your mind of Romans 5, 8 where Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still dead, while we were still hopeless, Christ died for us. But but notice here the emphasis isn't on Jesus' death. It's on the life that we're now given because Jesus is raised back from the dead, that we are alive with Christ, to which we should stop and ask, "What, what does that mean? I think most often we think of that in terms of the future, that one day our physical bodies are going to die and then Jesus is going to raise us back to life. And that's absolutely true. But it's also for here and now. It means that where we were dead, 
there is now life in Christ. Or in other words, where there was no desire, no taste, no love for God, there is now a desire, a taste, and a love for God. So important for us to see. Christianity is not simply about becoming a nicer person than we used to be. It's about becoming a new creation who loves God. Like Christianity is not just about us adopting new habits that make us into a better version of ourselves. It's about becoming a brand new person with brand new desires. And it's as hard for us to create a love and desire for God in our hearts as it is for us to raise a dead body back to life. In other words, it's impossible. And it's as easy for God to create a love and desire for himself in our hearts as it is for him to raise a dead body back to life. In other words, he can do it with one word. Lazarus, get up! Kyle, get up. Being alive together with Christ means we now have a desire and love for God. Not what he can give give us, simply, but himself. And don't get me wrong, that, that desire may be very faint, and it may ebb and flow, and it may rise and fall, but if you've got that desire in yourself, then praise God, he's made you alive. Just as if you have any pulse at all, you are alive, so if we have any desire whatsoever for God, we, we, we are alive in Christ. But if there isn't any desire for God, none at all, and that doesn't bother you, and you think, I, I just want to get on with my life. I don't care, I'm sitting here, just let me get on with my life. That should be a warning sign. If there's no desire whatsoever for God, and we just don't care, and we're just going through life, going through the motions, and we never have any taste or love for him, well, it might be a sign that we're still dead, and we need to call out to God to make us alive, as he does in Christ. And not only has he made us alive together with Christ, but he's also raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That God has now given us a new position, Paul, Paul mentions the heavenly places pretty often in Ephesians. Maybe you catch that if you've read through it or you've caught it already in our series. This idea of this spiritual realm or dimension where Jesus is reigning and ruling over everyone and everything even right now. And Paul says that's where we belong as followers of Christ. And in some sense, that's where we're at even right now. Right now, this moment, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places to which I think we just said, well, what does that mean? Like, that's a difficult concept. What, what does that mean for us? How do we get our minds around it? And we, we've talked a little bit already about some of what that means. So we have a different home, and we're kind of from the future. But, but especially in this verse, it seems to be that Paul is saying, we are seated now with Christ, and we are going to, in some sense, rule and reign over everything with him. Again, I don't know what all that means or what all that's going to look like, but I do know that's in direct contrast to how we were described as sinners in this passage. That, that what we were enslaved to the world and our own sinful desires and Satan. But now God has taken us from that position and he's raised us with Christ and we rule over those things. Again, I, I think mental pictures can be helpful to get these ideas down into our heart. It's, it's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like if you were working at an intern, or working as an intern, at a huge company or firm, 
and everyone got to tell you what to do, and you just had to do it. You're the intern, you're the bottom rung. And then one day you come in and you're told, as of today, you are actually a partner and part owner of this company. And now all of a sudden, all those people who got to boss you around and tell you what to do, you are over them. And you get to tell them what to do. In Christ, you and I are no longer under the rule of this world, of Satan, and of our own sinful desires. And, and don't, don't hear me wrong on that. Those things are still really powerful and seek to influence us and do influence us and many times. But, but in Christ, you and I don't have to follow the ways of this world. Like, we don't have to listen to the values and priorities and things the world says we could chase after and go after them. We can say, no. No, I'm going to live according to God's values and his priorities because they're better. In Christ, you don't have to listen to Satan. You can say, shove it, Satan. I'm not going to listen to your lies. And I'm not going to just keep blindly falling for your temptations. You, you, you don't have to be enslaved. We don't have to be enslaved to our sinful desires and passions. Sure, they still rage in us, but, but in Christ, we've got the power to say, no. No, I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to say yes to that anymore. See, when you know, when we know who we are, that we're seated with Christ, ruling over these things, even right now, it changes how we can live in the present. And in your own life, if there's some area or some sin that you say, I can't ever possibly change in this area, you need to recognize that's a lie. Because you're seated, even right now, with Christ, and by his power and his grace, you absolutely can change in that area. And because God has raised us up and seated us with Christ, we have a new future. Paul says that God raised us up and seated us with Christ in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, we read that, but we should stop and ask, what does that mean? What do these things mean that Paul is saying in this passage? And, and I'll point out, two things that I think it means for us. First, that whereas our future apart from Christ was we were destined for wrath, now our future in Christ is we're, we're destined for the immeasurable riches of God's grace to us. That's where we're headed. We were headed in this direction, now we're headed in that direction because of Christ. That our future is one of experiencing the limitless grace of God in Christ. This is kind of a cheap way of illustrating that, but I was recently at Red Robin, and if you've been to Red Robin, you know they prize themselves on what? Bottomless fries, right? You can eat as many fries as you want, and they're never going to tell you, you've had enough fries, get out of here, or supposedly, I don't know. Maybe you've put that to the test. We're being told in this passage, we have bottomless grace in Christ, that we're never going to get to a place in our life where God says, nope, You've used up all your grace, sorry. There's always going to be more. That for every new day in your life, every new challenge we face, there's going to be more grace in Christ for us to experience to walk through that. And not only that, but our future now is that we're going to experience God's grace for all eternity. It takes me about 30 minutes to get sick of bottomless fries. I don't know where you tap out on that meter. God's saying, it will take us an eternity, forever, to experience all the goodness of God's grace for us in Christ. 
We'll never get bored. We'll never get sick of it. We'll never say, I've had enough. There'll always be new depths to experience. That our future is one of God day after day after day saying, here's more grace in Christ for you. This is the very reason why God has saved us. But then we also get to the second thing. This also means we are both now and forever trophies of God's grace. The the NLT puts this verse, translates verse 7 this way. It says, God can point to us as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. God can point to you right now if you're a follower of Christ and say, look at him, look at her, see what I did in his life or her life. Aren't I amazing? Right now, God can do that. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 3.10, that's exactly what he is doing in the spiritual realms as we gather, saying, look at them, look what I did, check me out. Maybe you can picture it this way. Maybe some of you in here, not maybe, I know some of you are, are hunters. And if you're a good hunter, you likely have trophies on your wall. Maybe you got antlers, deer heads, bears, turkeys, or whatever else you've managed to kill. And, and those trophies declare what a great hunter you are based on what you've managed to kill. We are God's trophies displaying all the people he's brought from death to life that display how great his love and mercy and grace is for all eternity. In fact, we're we're told that's the very reason why God has saved us in this passage, because of his great mercy, because of his love, and because of his grace. And we are simply evidence of how great all three of those things are, which means we're called to live a new life right now that points to him or who we are now. We are God's new creation in Christ because Paul continues on in verses eight through 10 and he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. If we ask, how do I grab hold of all that God's done for me in Christ and make it my own, which was through faith. And yet even that faith, according to this passage, is a gift. Even that faith is a gift from God. That salvation from start to finish and our own ability to believe in God and what he's done for us is a pure gift from God. It's all of grace, which means we are now defined by grace. We're now defined by God's grace. Apart from Jesus, we likely defined ourselves by by our abilities or our talents or our interests or our ethnicity or, or our achievements in life or whatever else it might be. But now in Christ, you and I are only defined by what Jesus has done for us. Paul wants to show that salvation from start to finish is this gift. And so cut out the root of all boasting in us based on our own achievements, our own efforts, our own interest, whatever it might be, and stir up all boasting in God because he's the one who's done it for us. We, we can take no credit for who we are as Christians. All the credit goes to God and what he's done. There have been times where my wife and I have had people over for dinner, uh, and sometimes for dinner we'll go to Costco and buy a pre-made meal. Our favorites are uh, the frozen lasagna uh, and the street tacos. Uh, Street tacos 
are worth the price of admission to Costco alone, just in case you're wondering. They're fantastic. But we might serve those meals, and there have been times that people have said, wow, this meal is so delicious. And in that moment, it would be really foolish of either of us to say, oh, thank you so much for recognizing what a good cook we are. Yes, it is good, isn't it? No, we simply say, yeah, it's compliments of Costco. Aren't their meals great? Everything in us, that when we look at ourselves, our lives, our desires for God, any good that we've done, any good that's been done to us, we should never say, yeah, it's because I. If that sentence comes out of our mouth, we missed it. Rather, it should be, yes, it's because of God. Look at how great he is and how great his grace has been to me. And and when we're defined by God's grace alone, it both keeps us from boasting in ourselves and rather has us boast in God, but it it also, I think, keeps us from being divisive and dividing over unnecessary things. Just stop and think with me for a moment. What causes us to be not together in Christ, but divided and separate as a people and as a church? What one really big thing is when we start to boast in ourselves and look down on other people in the church. Which is really easy to do, isn't it? It, It's really easy for us to look down on other people in the church because they're so different than us. But Paul is saying the common denominator for every single one of us is grace. That grace should be what marks and defines us more than any of the other ways we are different. And when something else starts to define us more, whether it be our interests, our preferences, our politics, our abilities, our ethnicity and race, or our bank accounts, or anything else, when that starts to define us more than God's grace, then division is close behind for us. Paul wants to cut off all boasting in ourselves and have us defined by God's grace, both so that he gets all credit and so that we are united together and not divided. We'll hit more on that next week. But not only are we defined by God's grace, we're also now designed by God for good works. Verse 10 says we are God's workmanship, or the NLT there says God's masterpiece. That if your faith is in Christ, you are like God's great poem. That's in some ways what this word means. Or his great work of art or his great invention, a new creation in Christ. And you and I know that when we create something, we make it for a very specific purpose. In our house right now, we make a lot of little paper airplanes, and they're made for a very specific purpose, to see how far they can fly. All those paper airplanes look a little bit different and have different details and might be folded differently, yet all of them have the same purpose. Let's see how far this can fly. You and I look different, have different interests, have different abilities, have different talents, but but if you're in Christ, you've been created for this purpose, for good works. You might ask, what's a good work? Anything that seeks to glorify God and love other people, I think, falls under a good work. From changing diapers for the glory of God to leading a Bible study for the glory of God. From leading a business meeting to the glory of God to praying together with someone else who is hurting. From from sharing the gospel with someone and telling them what Christ has done for us to sharing your home with someone and inviting them in for a meal. 
Anything and everything done for God's glory and love for other people is a good work. And we're told this is what God has created us for. This is what he's prepared us for, that we might walk in them. God has designed each of us for good works and prepared them in advance for us. Which means every single new day that we wake up, including today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, God has good works he wants for you to walk in and for me to walk in. And maybe a great way for us to start in our days just praying, God, help me to see what good works you've prepared for me today. Help me to walk in them by your grace. And as we seek to live a life of good works, we, we do it not in a way where then we get the credit, we pat ourselves on the back, we say, look at how great of a person I am. But with every good work, we remind ourselves, God prepared that in advance for me, and it's only because of his grace that I was able to even walk into it. And so he ends up getting the credit for those things as well. Part of the beauty of this passage, I think what's so incredible about this passage, is it's saying every single Christian, that's you if your faith is in Christ, every single Christian is a living, breathing, walking testimony to God's grace. And every single Christian, that's you if your faith is in Christ, is a living, breathing, walking miracle. Every single one of us. There are no ordinary Christians. Every single person we gather with and belong together with is a living, breathing miracle of God's grace. That should affect how we interact and think about and talk about each other. Because that, that means the person that you might turn around and make small talk with this morning once the service is over was dead, and God made them alive. That means the the, the people that we might be prone to talk about behind their backs in the church, that person is seated right now with Jesus Christ next to you. That, That means the people that we might be prone to try to avoid or treat badly, that person you see and you're just kind of heading the opposite direction, that, that person is destined to be the, the, the recipient of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness in Christ. See, when we know our spiritual biography, it should affect how we relate to each other within the church. And then it also should impact how we go out of here into our lives and weeks. That, that we go out to be a visible display of God's grace in the world and walk in the good works that he has prepared for us. We no longer live to make much of ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves. But by the Holy Spirit, we seek to live transformed lives that display how great God's grace is. And we speak the truth about what God has done for us that might help other people to know his grace. See, when we know who we are, it should affect how we live, both together with one another as well as in our lives on Monday through Saturday and every other moment. And when we fail and we fall back or we fall short and we don't do the good works or we mistreat each other or we get divisive, then we fall back on the fact that it's God's grace that defines us and not any of our successes or failures. In Christ, you are a living miracle. And in Christ, you are a living, breathing testimony to how great God's grace is. Let's seek to live like that's true. Father, we praise you for being the one who has created us and given us life, just like we sang this morning. It's your breath in our lungs. 
We do not deserve life. We are not living, breathing, moving this morning because of anything we've done, but because of your free act of creating us. But God, we recognize you've not only created us, but you've also brought us from death to life in Christ. That if you've saved us, we are now demonstrations, examples of just how great your grace is. God, help us to be people who worship you and praise you for all the grace you've shown to us. And also to be people who live our lives no longer centered on ourselves, but centered on Christ, new creations, walking in the good works you prepared for us, for your praise, your glory, and the good of those who still need Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.